Hello, I'm Father Gregory Pine, joining you for this most recent episode of the Thomistic Institute podcast. Uh, as we have mentioned on a few previous episodes, we're trying a new format so that way we can follow up with Thomistic Institute speakers and kind of suss out some of the details from lectures that they have given either on campus or at an intellectual retreat or at one of the conferences hosted by the Thomistic Institute. Uh, so for this episode, I'm very delighted to be joined by Professor Jay Budzhevsky, uh, who's coming to us from the University of Texas at Austin. So thanks so much for joining us, uh, Professor. It's my pleasure. Um, now, many of our listeners will be familiar uh, with you from the many lectures that you've given for the Thomistic Institute on a variety of subjects, ranging from happiness to law and other things besides. Um, I, I, I personally heard you speak for the first time at the Harvard Conference on the Common Good in the fall of 2018, and it was great because a lot of the speakers, um, you know, were proposing things, and uh, they were doing it in a way that was, um, what will one say, not necessarily careful, but they were nuancing their claims in a particular way, and I wasn't always following everything, but I did when I went back and listened. But I remember that you came out guns blazing, and I was like, I... I admire this man. I also admire his Texas spirit. So I was very much impressed by that from the get-go. Uh, but for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with their work, um, would you just say a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, the work that you're presently engaged in? Well, sure. I'm a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, the government department is my home base, but philosophy is really what I do. Um, I've uh, I've written a bunch of books, but most recently I've I've written a couple of books on um, on uh, happiness, uh, a commentary on Thomas Aquinas's treatise on happiness, and um, and also a um, another book which is presenting a lot of the same material, but it's my own take on it and it's more adapted to general readers. And it's called How and How Not to Be Happy. The talk that you referred to that I gave recently on happiness was uh, was really based on that book. And, uh, you know, I've done other, other things, other mostly recently other commentaries on, uh, on Thomas Aquinas, but, um, but I've talked about uh, sexuality. I've talked about natural law. I'm, um, I'm, I, I'm basically a natural law scholar. And so, you know, that's pretty much it. Excellent. All right. Well, then let's get right into um, the topic at hand, which is happiness, apropos of the books and apropos of the lecture. Um, so sure. in the lecture, you describe certain problems attendant upon, you know, like kind of happiness based discourse. And one of the things that you highlight is like the difficulty of happiness assessment, the difficulty um, of happiness verification. Um, so one might think that asking yourself the question, am I happy, is a straightforward enough or easy enough question to answer, but you highlight certain reasons for which that might not necessarily be the case. So maybe to set us up for this discussion, could you highlight some of those reasons to which you adverted and maybe deepen some of those insights about how it's hard, you know, in the 21st century here and now for us to pose this question and to answer this question? Well, we all have some some knowledge of ourselves, but our knowledge of ourselves is often very unreliable. We um, we know a lot of things, but we don't necessarily we're not necessarily aware of everything that at some level we know. We don't connect the dots, um, making us aware of some things that deep down we really do know, and helping people connect the dots is really the method of this book. I start with common opinion, like Aristotle did, like even Thomas Aquinas did, and I try to. Um, I try to put those dots together. So, you know, I, it's very easy for a person to um, not know whether he is happy or not. Oftentimes, people are 
bitterly unhappy, but don't aren't really aware of it. It may be obvious to everybody around them, but it isn't obvious to them. It's even possible, I think, to be happy and not to be thinking about it, not to be aware of it. And as a matter of fact, if we're just asking ourselves obsessively all the time, am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? That's not really a path to happiness. But uh, sometimes... Um, an example I give in the book, um, this is, I borrowed this one from C.S. Lewis, uh, a married couple might have, uh, might be thinking, talking together and chatting about a period much earlier in their lives when they were newly married and they were having children. And they were so busy that they never thought about it, whether they were happy. But they reflect on it and they say to each other, you know, we were happy then. And they were right, but they didn't think about it at the time. And that's not a flaw. That's not a problem. We don't have to be thinking about it all the time, although we do need some knowledge of this so that we don't uh, take wrong turns. Another yeah, I think another thing that confuses people is that we assume that happiness is the same as good feelings, pleasure. And so we'll be having some good feeling and we say, I'm happy, or not having that good feeling and say, oh, I am, I'm unhappy now. That's really not the same thing. It's connected with happiness, but it isn't the same topic. So thinking about um, the difference between the way that happiness registers, you know, for a rock, for a plant, for an animal, for a human being, for an angel, for God. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the degree or extent to which one could say that rocks are happy or plants are happy or animals are happy, except insofar as they attain to a certain end, whether that's automatic or instinctual or whether that's something that need be striven for. That, that aside, uh, for us as human beings, it seems like a modicum of awareness, a modicum of attention is necessary for happiness. And yet, you know, like you adverted to, you can recognize the fact that you were happy afterwards. Um, so like this interplay of living our lives and then reflecting upon our lives seems bound up with the question of happiness. Um, to what extent do you think like sustained discourse about happiness is an integral feature of the happiness itself? Or is it just necessary as a way by which to identify, to like earmark the experience as having been happy? Well, I think that um, <clears throat> happiness is the highest activity of our highest power. What is our highest power? Our highest power is our, is our rational power. It's our intellective power. And um, so the the our happiness is not something that an animal can experience because it doesn't have that power at all it can flourish and by analogy we can say the dog is happy but he's not happy in the sense that we understand a human being to, to be happy now what is the activity of this rational power that makes it sound as though we're sitting around in a seminar room and uh, talking with each other what is happiness and and that's the that's the supreme um, happiness right there i don't think so um, I think that uh, I think that uh, the for the mind to behold the truth is what really is the highest activity of the mind, and that's not just something that we're reasoning out like proving theorems. That's when we're actually beholding something. You might say the delight of the eyes is to see something beautiful. The delight of the mind and the delight of the heart is to is to is to see the truth and behold it. Now, I think we're not going to really fully experience that uh, unless we are among the redeemed, seeing the face of God in himself, because he's the highest object of the mind. And we can't even see him as he is in himself in this life. That's going to require the supernatural elevation of our powers. But then we'll be so totally happy in this vision that there can be nothing further to be desired.
But even in this life, um, how else is how else is the happiness of this life connected with reason? Well, we need to direct our lives according to reason. We need to, uh, you know, if the, the happiness of this life is incomplete, it's imperfect, it's interrupted. But such as it is, I think more than anything else, it requires the virtues. And it requires something for the virtues to work with. I'm not going to be able to think carefully, gee, how can I feed my family unless I have something to feed them with? But um, to plan our lives, to exercise the virtues, to, to, to have justice, to have virtue, to have uh, courage, to have temperance, to, to, to live our lives in this rational pattern that hangs together and makes sense for a rational being like ourselves who's, who's, who is aimed at the truth, that that's its highest, highest good, um, you know, that's necessary for the happiness of this life. I, fe I fear that the question that I'm about to formulate will not end up as a question, but I'm about to think out loud and I will try to end with a question mark. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about my experience in the novitiate and I remember being very maybe yeah. worried or anxious that I would get prayer right. And in typical Dominican fashion, or maybe just simply in typical Gregory fashion, uh, the move that I made was to read books about prayer, which is one approach, right? You can inform your practice by a certain theory or by benefiting by or benefiting from the theory of those who have gone before you in the church's life and the church's tradition. But I think kind of reflecting on it based on what you just described in response to the last answer, um, that's, that's not, that, that needn't be the case. I think there's probably a difference that one might describe between living reasonably, which is to say according to reason, virtuously, and then living intellectually, which is to dedicate part of one's life to a kind, like a kind of conscious reflection or a kind of meta-reflection upon the life itself. And I, and I suspect that there's probably something to be said for, yeah, the way that we approach many disciplines. I mean, like there's a, there's a whole cottage industry of books it's like, how do I get more out of mass? And the typical move is like, think more about it or think differently about it or think this, that way or the other about it. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm gesturing here towards a kind of, kind of question like, you know, to be reasonable, to be rational, to be intellectual, are there some distinctions that we can draw in and amongst these different human experiences, human phenomena, which help us to better embody happiness whilst reflecting upon happiness? Well, you want to plunge into it. I, I think that um, that uh, good friends plunge into their friendship. They practice it all the time. They do good things for each other. They enjoy each other. Um, they aren't necessarily celebrating about their 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 friendship all the time and thinking, "Gee, what exactly made that an act of friendship?" What do you say, Bruce? You know, this this, is, this isn't necessarily how it's going to be. Um, now. Uh, um, there's a misunderstanding of this that I think is very, very easy. I can remember years and years ago uh, when I first came, when I was a very young man, and I, I came across the idea that that uh, our highest good lies in contemplation in some sense. And, um, you know, I saw, I saw one version of this in Thomas Aquinas, which I misunderstood. I saw it in Aristotle. And I, and I, I, I really didn't grasp this at all. I thought that this meant, oh, what contemplation, what that means is, um, you know, you think about the theorem and you think about how you got to the theorem and you think about, uh, you think about this philosophical proof and you reflect on this and you do what scientists and philosophers do. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good activity of the mind. It's a high activity of the mind. It isn't what Thomas Aquinas, it, it may be what Aristotle means by contemplation. These, these truths, they're, they're, they're blackboard truths for him. 
there are uh, there are things that can't other other than be the way that they are, and you just you just think about them. But um, but Thomas, but Aristotle doesn't know that the truth is something that we can be immersed in, that the truth is something that we can um, that we can, that can know us and and we can be known. We we can we can know it in return. Uh, Thomas Aquinas does. This is the contemplation of God that we're talking about. And I think that kind of, that to contemplate God, uh, you know, a, a better, almost a better word for this, well, maybe it is a better word, is, um, is, is to love God. Love is, love is something the mind participates in, too. Uh, a dog may have affection, but the dog doesn't have love. We, um, we, um, we have, we direct our will according to a true understanding of the of the true good of the other person or in the case of god whose whose good is perfect and we can't contribute anything to it we exult in that good we delight in it this is love this is uh, this is personal this is this is um, this is knowing god as the lover and the beloved know each other so sure the lover and the beloved know each other and the mind is involved there but it's not just a blackboard activity. And, um, and so if we think that the happiest people in the world are a bunch of philosophers sitting around in a seminar room, we're really misunderstanding what's going on here. Um, so, so this common occasions for me, okay, so I'm thinking how love is a kind of mode of knowing or love is a mode of sympathizing, maybe to put it in more basic terms. Um, and I'm thinking about the way that, that wisdom is described in the classical tradition. Um, maybe when people hear wisdom, they think uh, high and lofty thoughts, or they think the philosopher gazing into the stars. But what is there, you know, like what, what about wisdom kind of draws together these veins of knowledge and love such that one has, yeah, a sympathy, not in a kind of crass way, but has a real sympathy for the other, for the truth, for the reality that's at stake, which actually begets this type of engagement, this type of encounter, which you're describing. Yeah, Thomas Aquinas says that... Um, that love does involve a kind of a knowledge. The lover and the beloved know each other, but it's not, um, it's not um, the, just that they know a set of propositions about each other. They know each other in something like the way that they know themselves, because through their love, they have become akin to each other. They have become, he says, connatural to each other. They have become adapted to each other. Um, my wife and I sometimes, sometimes she knows what I'm thinking. I know what she's thinking, but it's not because I've 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 gone through a, a process of uh, of um, of inference and demonstration. It's that we have become akin to each other. We become like each other. Now the 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 great thing would be, you know, this is what we experience. I mentioned the husband and his wife. Good friends uh, can experience this. This is what we can experience in our relationship with God. Now, I think there are limitations on this in this life, but in, in the next life, we will experience that perfectly. He will, he will uh, not, not making us infinite like himself, but he will accommodate himself to us. We become, as one of the apostles puts it in the New, Te in the New Testament, partakers of the divine life. Now, that's, that's knowledge and that's love. This is wisdom. You know, it's not for nothing that the wisdom books in the Old Testament use the, um, they, per, they personify divine wisdom as a, a woman who says, turn in at my house and let me, let me, let me give you a feast and, uh, and to turn away from your foolish ways. Uh, it, uh, it, this is, this is, um, 
She, it, it says she dances before God all the time. This is an attribute of God himself that we're talking about. It's not separate from God. But, but the, to personalize it is very important. Truth, the, the truth itself is not an abstraction. It isn't, we, can, we can make propositions about the truth that are, tr that are, that are uh, accurate, but the truth itself is not a proposition. It isn't an, ac an, uh, uh, um, uh, an abstraction. It is, it, what we want to talk about is truth himself in person, and that is God. So I want to draw out two examples from um, literature to illumine one of the points you just made and then transition from there into a, a new vein of conversation. So I'm thinking about what you said where, you know, the, the beloved or the lover can read the thoughts of the beloved to a certain to a certain extent insofar as there is this love between them and that it's not a kind of cold and calculating thing. It's a, uh, you know, it's a kind of warm interpersonal thing. So I'm thinking of the way that Sherlock Holmes reads the thoughts of Dr. Watson, you know, he, based on glances and size and where he's looking on the newspaper, he can make, he can deduce, you know, through those steps that you described to make a variety of inferences and then come to the ultimate conclusion in such a way as to bewilder Dr. Watson and to show his prowess. Whereas I'm thinking of another example from the book, A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken, where he describes how they, they want to kind of bind their lives together by a thousand sharings. And so, you know, like so intimate is their love that when Davy looks at the mantelpiece when they're hosting company, he knows that what she wants are for the candelabra to be lit so as to set the mood on account of the fact that the sun has gone down. So like whereas the one is a kind of stepwise function, the other is just a simple gaze. Now, on the basis of these observations, I want to just pivot a little bit because in, in the context of your lecture, you draw, you know, very richly and widely from a variety of different kind of, one might say, subordinated sciences or other disciplines from psychology, from sociology, from literature. And so it's clear that, you know, when you're reading, you're attending, you're paying attention, and then you're incorporating those into like happiness discourse. Now, for our own experience of happiness, um, to what degree, you know, like to what degree need we also pay attention to these things? Like there are all these humane sciences or all these different humane studies. Uh, what part of our formation or kind of like what do they contribute to our human lives and how do we pay attention to them and incorporate them into the discourse as we live it, you know, and as we as we prosecute it? Yeah, well, books <laughs> and intellectual disciplines are wonderful, but I think sometimes we misunderstand what uh, what books are for. Um, sure, in the book, I, I, I talk about psychology and sociology and history and this and that and the other. But the way I see it is this. We we come to understand ourselves not as not as uh, solitary beings. We're not slugs. We're social beings. We're made in such a way. This is our nature. God made us this way that we don't, um, we can't even be happy unless we can share that happiness with others. We can't experience the good life unless that good life is experienced in communion with others. And we come to know ourselves and to know what it is to be a human being and to experience all of, the, all of these goods in communion with others too. So what we're doing is we're having a conversation. And in this conversation, you may remind me of something and you say, but isn't it like this? Isn't it like this with you? And I think, oh yeah, I never thought of that before, but you know, that's really true. I do know that, I just never thought of it. Um, well, when we use books and when we, when we 
access all of these disciplines, what we're doing is extending, if we do it right, we're extending that conversation. We're extending it to many more people than we will ever meet. We're extending it across the centuries. And the conversation across the centuries is what is, uh, I think, the right way to, to think about this kind of uh, this kind of intellectual endeavor. There's a metaphor that I borrowed. From, I'm not a Wittgensteinian, but I, there's a metaphor that I borrowed from uh, Wittgenstein that I like for this. These people help us to assemble reminders of things that we already know and call them to our attention. If there was something that you didn't have a clue about, absolutely knew nothing about it, and there was nothing in your experience that corresponded to what the other person was talking about, he couldn't teach you anything. And that's true of your friend sitting across the table from you. It's true of um, of your wife at the dinner table. It's true of um, it's true of a philosopher whom you're reading you're reading in a book. But what they can do is uh, is call attention to the things that, at some level, we really do know, and help you to uh, and help you to make sense of those things, um, uh, uh, and uh, purify them of misunderstandings. And uh, so I, I think that that's the that's the spirit in which I want to do this. Sometimes I, people, some interviewers have said, well, gee, I see that you use psychology and sociology and philosophy in this book. And I always worry. I think, oh my gosh, people are going to be afraid. I can't read this. I can't read this. And I say, and I say, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just using that to assemble reminders. And uh, so, you know, you try to learn what you can from, from wise people in the past, or even learn what you can from the, from the more obvious mistakes of people who, have, uh, who haven't gotten it all right. We can learn things that way, too. Sometimes they make us aware of our own mistakes. Yeah. Um, so thinking about it in terms of, I don't know if it's originally Chestertonian, the term, the democracy of the dead, you know, extending, extending the I conversations. Okay, great. This pleases me. So that it includes those who have gone before us. So why, why should somebody yes. be excluded from the conversation on account of the trifling fact that he or she is dead? Um, and I think right. that within certain circles, certain Christian circles, certain believing circles, I think we often find it easier to host conversations with the dead than we do with some of our contemporaries. And maybe, you know, like part of the appeal too of incorporating sociology and psychology, it's an attempt to host a conversation with the living from whom we might be perhaps a bit more estranged. So maybe on oh, the yeah. basis on the basis of that, um, you know, kind of comparison or the, the basis of that experience, um, what, what do you think are, yeah, what are some practices or what are some ways in which we can, you know, like bridge these gaps, because I think maybe it's just American discourse or maybe it's just Western discourse, but I feel like we feel acutely in this moment, whether it's more acutely or less acutely, I'm not conscious, but we feel acutely uh, the kind of non-convertibility of terms. We feel acutely the kind of emotivism, which backs a lot of our conversations such that we, yeah. we despair of forging genuine bonds. And it seems like if happiness is on the basis of some conversation, some sharing, some kind of like mutual contributing like contributing to a common project then then that's going to have to happen so yeah what 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 would you say uh in that regard well i think one of the reasons that we find it so difficult to talk to a lot of our contemporaries today is that a lot of our contemporaries have given up the conversation across the centuries they've they've even given up in many cases the belief that you can learn anything they're locked you know people are locked in their own minds they say they say well i've got my truth and you've got your truth 
And if my truth is my truth and it doesn't have anything to do with any experience out there or any, any feature of the real world or anything that I could be mistaken about or anything that you might point, point out to me or call my attention to, then that means I, that means I can never learn anything. And uh, so one of the difficulties is, is to break through that. Now, as a teacher, uh, I try to break through that in the classroom. I have, I have uh, my students read things from, uh, from, from other places, other times, but that are uh, accessible to them and try to, try to, try to, try so that they can get to see something. And sometimes it's very surprising. Something that my students might never have read on their own, they may really resonate with and they're surprised, they're shocked, like, uh, like, uh, I and many other teachers will use uh, Dante's Purgatorio, and you would think, oh, you know, only a Catholic would be interested in that. And immediately they get it. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we don't, if we're just engaged in a private conversation with somebody, if we're not in a classroom, if we're not, if it's not a quote-unquote intellectual conversation, and we're just trying to break through a barrier, take a practical topic, for instance, like, uh, like abortion. Um, now, some people are open to rational arguments. If you believe that murder is deliberately taking an innocent human life, now let's consider, is this innocent? Is it a human life? Da, da, da. Some people are open to rational arguments. Some people are not. But um, uh, some people are open to talking about wisdom from the past. Some people are not. But even in a private conversation, what you can do is you can still do that assembling of reminders. This is how we learn. Maybe we can be helpful to our friends in this. I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife was a crisis pregnancy counselor at a uh, pro-life uh, pregnancy resource center for about 13 years. And um, she would sometimes, sometimes a, um, there would be a woman sitting across the table from her and she said, the woman would say, well, I just, I just can't have a baby right now. This is a woman who'd already had a pregnancy test and she knew that she was pregnant. She said, I can't, just can't have a baby right now. Now, what my wife would say sometimes, um, well, what do you call what's inside you right now? And almost every woman, 99% of women, according to my wife, uh, unless they had been really sternly indoctrinated in radical feminist ideology, 99% of women say, well, I call it a baby. It's the spontaneous answer. So all you, have to, all, you, all you do here is you assemble reminders. My wife would say, well, then, it looks from what you're telling me like the question before you isn't whether you can have a baby right now, but what you're going to do with the one that you've already got. And they could see this. They could see this because you weren't pushing something at them that they rejected. You were speaking to them in terms of something that they recognized but hadn't noticed. Now, we can, now we can do the, the great philosophers did that, too. We think that philosophy is something different than that. But the great philosophers did that sort of thing. For instance, take the take the um, the 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 abstract, seemingly abstract notion that every human action is for, is undertaken for the sake of some good. Well, Aristotle starts with this, but he's speaking to students, and it's very conversational in mode, even though it isn't a formal dialogue. Um, I I do this in my classroom, as I'll say. Um, I'll say, what was the first thing that you got up today, that you did today when you got up? Oh, I brushed my teeth, professor. 
well, okay, did you brush your teeth for no reason at all or did you do it for, for some reason? Oh, I, I, I did it for some reason. What did you do it for? Well, I wanted them to be clean. Oh, so you did it for the sake of some good? Well, yeah, sure. Do you think you do everything for the sake of some good? You know, you're, you're, you're connecting with things that people already know. That's what Aristotle did. That's what the great philosophers do. It begins in common sense, but tries to elevate it. So why can't we plunge into that too? That's the kind of conversation that we need to have. It doesn't sound like what we think of when we think of learning philosophy or reading books, but that is what we should be doing. So in the lecture, you made reference to the fact that in some of your classes or more broadly, you've begun to experience or you have experienced a kind of practical despair about the prospect oh, yeah. of happiness, that people mm -hmm. will either define happiness in negative terms without realizing it, like happiness is just the absence of pain or the reduction of suffering. Yes. Um, and then yes. when pressed, they're, they're unable to furnish a positive answer. Do you think like, is, is that now part of, um, well, kind of like in a, in a secular academic context, is that now part of the discourse in, a, you know, like a fully Christian context? Is that now part of the proclamation of the word of the event, like the evangelization of peoples to like bring them to the recognition that there is something good to be had in the world? It seems like, oh, it I seems think like that's is. a basic step. <laughs> oh, I think there is one of the, one of the purposes of my book is to, is to tell people don't settle. Mm. Now, in one sense, of course, we have to settle. We can't expect perfect happiness in this life by the use of our own powers. That's just, that's just a fact. The happiness that we can experience in this life by the use of our own powers is, uh, is incomplete, partial, fragmentary. Um, but there is such a thing as complete fulfillment, or we, or we wouldn't even be able to conceive it and desire it. You know, just like, I mean, I, I have a desire for food. Well, that's, it, it's a natural desire. I wouldn't have it unless there were such a thing as food and I needed it. In the same way, if I desire fulfillment um, naturally, there must be such a thing. So I, I try to encourage people not to give up, not to hang it up, not to despair, not to quote unquote settle, you know. Um, but what that means may knock them a little bit out of their, their comfort zone. People will say, oh, you know, you, you reach the end of that path of reflection and you start talking about God and people say, well, I'm not a religious person. And, you know, this isn't a, this is, that's like saying, well, I, I don't want to take a breath right now because, you know, I'm not a, I'm not the oxygen liking sort of person. It being religious shouldn't be a matter of personal preference or taste. It, it should be about being in touch with reality. Is there in fact a God? Whether I feel like it or not, or whether I think of myself as a religious person, is he in fact my greatest good? And, um, you know, that's the direction that we have to go to. So yes, I think this is, this is a part of our apologetics. Um, a lot of people think, well, God, talking about God, is only, is only just doing the right thing. Well, of course it is, but it's also about our complete and utter fulfillment. It's about, it's about attaining what he made us for, uh, hitting the target at which God is aiming us like arrows from the divine bow. And that's what this is really about. And we want, we should be excited about that. It's amazing to me how, how often, now I realize that there are some religious things that it's, it's a mistake to talk about too quickly because people will be turned off. And in fact, the more, the more explicitly religious things in my book, I held off until the last couple of chapters. And I even promised readers who, were, who didn't think of themselves as religious, don't worry, 
You don't have to deal with that until the last couple of chapters. And when you get there, if you want to stop reading, you can stop reading. Although that's a little bit like somebody who gets to the end of the mystery novel and doesn't read the solution to the mystery in the last chapter because he says, I'm not the sort of person who likes solutions to mysteries. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I, I say to people, you can do that. But, but it's amazing to me that even taking caution not to bring things up prematurely, so many Christians will never talk about our happiness, our divine fulfillment. We'll never talk about heaven. That's, that's really curious. Um, I don't think that, we should, that, that our problem is that we talk too much about heaven and it's all pie in the sky by and by. Um, our problem is that we really don't talk enough about it. And so we don't put things of this life in proper context. So just kind of, um, you know, sitting, sitting beside the listener to this podcast and thinking about the conversations which may be before him or her, right? Maybe there are people, you know, whom we'll meet in the university setting or in the work setting or elsewhere who have perhaps despaired of their happiness, who have misidentified their happiness, who are blind to the fact of their unhappiness, which you made mention of. And I think that's like we, we find ourselves confronted by these situations and we feel, um, we feel how thin our argumentation or our rhetoric can be at times. It's like, um, you know, somebody says, well, I'm happy with this, with this life choice. And then we're like, wait, no, you're not. Because if you really knew, they're like, but I do really know. And you're like, oh, where do I go with this argument? Um, so maybe just to, for a couple final thoughts for those kind of budding dialecticians or apologists who want to you know, like be of service in this, you know, proclamation that happiness is in fact a possibility, that it has an ultimate horizon, that it's heaven, that is not an opiate of the masses, that Jesus Christ is in fact, Lord, that he has risen from the dead and that resurrection is coming for you. What are some like maybe just simple tools, simple, simple things that we can work on, you know, habits of mind and heart so as to be better apologists, to be better dialecticians, to be better in the service of the proclamation of this truth? Well, I think one of the things that we need to realize is that many times when people speak to us, um, okay, there's a difference between being asked a question, all right, then you should try to answer. Being posed with an objection, well, you try to present a solution. There's a difference between those two things and a smokescreen. Mm. And it isn't always obvious. Sometimes somebody may, may say something that looks like a question, but it isn't a question. It's a way of avoiding the question. Like when Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? That wasn't a way to begin a discussion. That was a way to end it. He turns on his heel, walks out of the room, right? Um, and people will often say things like, yeah, well, I'm satisfied with this life choice. They're really not. And deep down, they know they're not. So you keep asking questions. Put them on the defensive. Don't, don't let them just be clever. So much of our education today is not about wisdom. It's about teaching us to be clever and to come to find ways to shut windows that open, windows into the truth, to shut them quickly. And what you want to do is keep those windows open a little bit longer. Somebody says, uh, says, says, um, says, oh, I'm happy with this life choice. Well, what do you mean by being happy with it? Well, I feel pretty good. Um, is feeling pretty good the best thing that we can that we can look for in life? Well, yeah. What else is there but pleasure? Okay. Um, have you ever have you ever have you ever experienced uh, a lot of pleasure and you get to thinking, gee, this is kind of getting old? Almost everybody will say yes. Almost everybody will say yes. One of my graduate students in a seminar once 
when I said, uh, said pleasure was the sole good, pleasure was the meaning of happiness, I said, but doesn't it leave you wanting something more? She actually got angry. She said, yes, <laughs> yes, it does, but that's all there is. And that's, you know, you just have to live with it. And um, there are different ways of that. But, you know, if somebody gets angry with you, if you keep your own cool, there are ways of making use of that, too. A student in class once something had come up concerning God, and, um, and he was getting angry. And I said, and he was a little curious, I said, why are you angry? Well, Texas students tend to be very polite. And uh, he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I said, no, 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 I'm not scolding you. I'm not scolding you for being angry. I'm just asking you, why are you angry? And he said, well, I guess I, I, guess I, uh, I don't like what you were saying. And I, said, and I said, well, why? Well, I don't think it was true. And I said, well, okay. Um, there are a lot of things that people say to me that I think are not true and I don't get angry. So I don't think that that could be your whole reason. I don't th you don't get angry with everybody who says something that you don't think is true, do you? He said, no. And I said, uh, and, I, and I said, so what do you think has really made you angry? He said, because I guess I didn't want to hear it. And I said, well, okay then. Not right now, maybe. You can come and talk with me if you want to. But it looks like the real question that we need to be talking about isn't, isn't um, whether this is right at the moment, isn't whether this is true or whether this is true or whether that proposition is correct, but why you don't want to hear it. That would be, and so even if you don't come and talk to me, I'd encourage you to think about that. Now, these are things that we can do. It's not textbook stuff, you know? It, you know, you know you've got a treatise and it presents all these demonstrations and syllogisms and, and arguments and so forth. People don't, to most people, that seems like an abstraction. They don't connect it with themselves. But I noticed that that is how Socrates proceeded, right? Um, I'm not as good as Socrates, but you get, the, you get the point. He asked these people questions, and they sort of began to get it. And that, you know, I think that that's what we want to do. And I, all the great thinkers were trying to do that. That's what Thomas Aquinas tries to do. And, uh, you know, if we can follow in their footsteps just a little bit and try to... Uh, try to, to if we can't come up quite to the to the full fragrance of, of that, at least to get the sniff of it, you know, <laughs> of that kind of of that kind of conversation, we're 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 doing some good. Yeah, I I draw great encouragement from that. Um, I'm thinking also in the background of the fact that the natural law cannot be wholly obscured or wholly blotted out from the heart of man. So insofar as the person is willing to be honest or is willing to be honest about his it, like dishonesty, whatever level you can kind of get them at. You have some terra firma and on the basis of which, you know, you can begin, yeah, like you said, to ask questions which provoke reflections. And if the person wants to engage them, good. If they don't, okay. But at the very least, that's something with which to work because there's so many people out there that are willing to peddle falsity for the sake of some political end or financial end or whatever. But if somebody in a disinterested way says, well, what do you really think? That's, that can be destabilizing in a good way. Yes, it can. And, and um, I, you're absolutely right when you say that the natural law cannot be completely blotted out from the heart of man. Now, what we can do is we can suppress it. Mm -hmm. We can tell ourselves that we don't know what we really do know. We can, we can lie to ourselves. You know, St. Paul talks about this in the, second, in the, uh, in the uh, letter to the Romans. He's talking about the, the, uh, the knowledge of God. He says, um, you might expect that he would say, these darn pagans, 
they uh, they ought to know that there's a God, but they don't. And the interesting thing is that that's not what he says. What he says is that they do know. And they tell themselves they don't. His expression is they 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 suppress the truth in right in unrighteousness. Um, now that's the problem that we have. People say, "Well, I don't know that," and we just assume, "Oh, he doesn't know that." No, it may be that he doesn't know that, but it may also be that he knows that darn good and well. But he doesn't want to admit to himself that he knows it. So the question then is, how do I get through the smoke screen? How do I get him to peek, peek behind his own smoke? Where is the chink in his, in his armor? And, um, and in order to do that, you have to not just be logical and use all of your philosophical tools, but you have to listen with the ears of your heart. And you have to be in prayer the whole kind time. And I think you better love this person because otherwise you don't have a chance. Yeah. No, that's, there's a, a, a Dominican of the early 20th century, Father Vincent McNabb, who said, if you do not love them, do not preach to them. And I was thinking of this recently because, you know, apropos of the whole conversation with, um, you know, Dobbs, Roe v. Wade. And um, a while back, I had read a First Things article about, like, pro-life rhetoric. And, um, you know, anytime one goes to the pro-life march, you hear a lot of chants. And some of those, you know, some of those chants sound good and some of those chants sound less good, which isn't to, you know, condemn those who make them because they're not necessarily thinking about how these chants are formulated propositionally or rhetorically. But like, you'll hear things like, we love babies. Yes, we do. We love babies. How about you? Which is like, yeah, you know, I love babies. But I also suspect that, you know, a lot of these mothers are cognizant of the fact, like your, your wife was able to uh, suss out, you know, they're aware of the fact that it's a baby as well. But it's not so much a matter of whether or not I take my baby's life, I kill my baby. It's more so a matter of like who dies. And there's this group based out of the Midwest, and I've forgotten where, but called the Caring Foundation. And they did a bunch of market research and they found that for women, it's a matter often of choosing between, you know, does this baby die or, you know, do, do my future plans die? Do my, you know, like educational, whatever, um, aspirations die? Do, do, does my self-understanding as a good mother die or whatever, you know? So like for them, it just represented a death. It was just a matter of which death was to transpire. And so the Caring Foundation ran all of these advertisements that basically said, you won't die. So as, you know, strong, intelligent, confident women, often in the workplace or doing whatever and, and projecting the fact that I had my baby and my life is not over, you know? And in fact, my life is good, dare I say better. Although, you know, I don't know the alternative, but it seems from, you know, what, yeah, what happens in other lives that, yeah. When people, when people do what is desperately wrong, and, uh, and we all have had that experience, all right? We have all uh, uh, committed sin on one occasion or another. And when instead of repenting, we, we, uh, we tell ourselves that it isn't true, we're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to save ourselves by saying, I don't hear the voice of conscience. I don't hear it accusing me. You know, I can't hear. Um, but that is a path to death. It, and... The voice is still speaking to us. We have to shout with our thoughts louder and louder to hold it down. We have to drive our, our lives into all kinds of knots in order not to reckon with what the truth is. So not only are you, are you right, I think, that yes, you can live uh, if you have your baby, um, but you can't live as you need to live, as you want to live. Uh, if you, um, if you, if you kill it. And, um, I mean, that's something that can be said in compassion to women. It's, it's most easily said to women by other women. I'm a man, but, um, this is one of the reasons I admire my, my, my wife's testimony on this so much and her, the way that she, uh, 
the way that she spoke. I learned a lot about natural law from just listening her to tell me about how she talks, how she talks to women and uh, how she, I sometimes call it dredging the sunken conscience. She, she, she found ways it's down there and people yeah. assume, oh, th this person disagrees with me. This person must not know uh, the truth that I'm trying to convey. No, often it's down there and you've got to bring it up to the surface. The whole thing is to get it up there. Wow. Well, that's, that's uh, a helpful thought for me with which to conclude this notion of, yeah, dredging the sunken conscience. And I think that a lot of Christian witness in an academic setting, in a more broadly evangelical setting, has this effect, whether by direct uh, engagement or as a kind of uh, overflow or after effect on account of the fact that when one lives as one, you know, is called to live, it has a way by which of troubling the others <laughs> who feel that call in their lives but haven't necessarily addressed it in a way in which they might. So this is, yeah, this, this conversation for me has been super helpful. So thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, so Professor Budzhashevsky, just as a, as a kind of closing note, would you once again highlight uh, these two most recent publications and other places where people can follow up with you and with your work? Okay, now the, the, ones, the two that we've talked about are not actually the two most recent. One of them is the most recent, and that's How and How Not to Be Happy. That's, uh, that's not a book just for scholars, it's for everybody, and I hope scholars can get something from it too. How and How Not to Be Happy, it's from Regnery. The other one is the, that we talked about is not the most recent before that. It was a couple of books before it, but it's my commentary on Thomas Aquinas' Treatise on Happiness and Ultimate Purpose. That's more for students and scholars, but also for serious inquirers. Ordinary, I try to make I try to make everything that I write accessible to ordinary people, even if they're not scholars. So that if you want to if you want to do the grunt work, okay, I think you can understand this book, and that's uh, published by Cambridge. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Thanks uh, so very much for for having joined and for uh, yeah pursuing these questions yet further. Uh, to our listeners, thanks so much for having tuned in. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume your podcasts. And then check out ThomisticInstitute.org for upcoming lectures at a campus near you, for upcoming conferences and intellectual retreats to which you can apply, and then for other content uh, from which you might benefit. So uh, our prayers are for you. Please pray for us, and we will look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast. Cheers. Cheers.